So here's this case. This is a 55-year-old man with HCV, HIV co-infection. His AST is 48. His ALT is 39. His ALKFAS is 143. Billy's 1.1. 1 .1, 13.7. Platelets 129. He has no symptoms. His physical exam is normal. His CD4 counts 325, and his HIV is undetectable at 50 uh, on a raltegravir and tricitabine tenofovir regimen. So any thoughts about that? You've, this is sort of the graduate school now. Where, uh, so you look at those numbers, and what are you thinking? So you're a little worried about cirrhosis. What things are for that? What things against that? So the platelet count. So you've all gotten the message about platelet count. His platelet count's low. But he does have HIV and is on an antiretroviral regimen, which could have some marrow suppressive features to it. So it could be that too, right? Okay. What about the other labs? They all look good? Hmm? The liver functions. What about them? They, what, what do you want to say about that? So they're elevated, even though the local lab would have these as, uh, as not elevated. They they are elevated. Any other features anyone wants to mention? Susanna, you look like you have a comment. No. No. <laughs> okay. Um, so the AST being higher than the ALT, while not a definitive marker, we tend to see that flip in patients with more advanced liver disease. So that would also support that this is a more advanced fibrosis case, even though those numbers are all low. So we have a question, and uh, this is hopefully set up in the system. So the patient is found to have HCV genotype 1, no subtype available, high viral load. He wants to know if the stuff on the HCV commercial would work. And you would now do which of the following? Ultrasound, liver biopsy, other non-invasive marker assay, obtain a subtype. Go ahead and vote. I do not know this song. What was it? Oh. Okay. So the majority, a minority of the majority, would get a non-invasive marker assay. Um, very few of you would get a liver biopsy. Uh, 
and about a third would get an ultrasound, and some of you would try to obtain a subtype. So uh, there's not one right answer here. Um, the uh, ultrasound would be a good choice for the reasons that you heard in the last case. Uh, the biopsy, because the numbers are by the local lab normal, and you could be trying to convince yourself this patient's fine and is not cirrhotic, and a liver biopsy is going to give you a definitive answer on that. Uh, other non-invasive markers, well, that's an easy way to start with this, so that's not unreasonable. And obtain a subtype. So uh, for those who want to obtain a subtype, would any of you who said that tell me what your thinking is? and how you're going to do that? No? <laughs> Quiet. So you've seen that there is some difference in terms of management, depending on if this patient is a 1A or a 1B. And so the first thing you need to ask yourself is, is when was the prior subtype obtained? Prior to 2011, we actually did not worry about subtypes, although they have been reported for more than a decade. But the test was actually wrong frequently. So if it was an older type uh, that was done, say someone had tested this seven, eight years ago, then uh, and you pulled that out of the medical record, then there would be a reason to try and redo it now and see if you could obtain that subtype. If, on the other hand, you just did it and it came back with that, it doesn't happen very often, but it does happen. And generally, unless you have access to a very high-level lab that's doing actual sequencing, you're probably not going to be able to get that answer. So you're going to have to assume the worst. And the worst is generally a 1A, not a 1B. So I think you have to go into this thinking 1A for, for most people. So you also do do the ultrasound. And this is what you see. What is that? It has the special sign, the, uh, the uh, put some arrows on its sign. There's something that, that, that obviously doesn't look like everything else in the liver. Something doesn't belong. So, <laughs> so there's something there. And, and then, this is real world, you, you just got this ultrasound, and now you have to decide what are you going to do with that. So, and the report you get back says lesion seen uh, 2.1 centimeters in diameter. That ain't right. That's it. So your choices are now you can refer to a general surgeon for a resection, refer to interventional radiology for biopsy, or you can refer him to a transplant center. You could say, mm, not my problem, and start DAA for HCV, or you can order a biphasic CT scan.
So go ahead and vote. Huh, is it going? There's no music. It was there. I want music from the 60s and 70s. <laughs> Dion and the Belmonts would be great. <laughs> okay. So almost a split of the two main choices. Uh, refer to interventional radiology for biopsy and order a biphasic CT. So let's, let's talk through these. Um, there's very few liver lesions that should be resected. And in general, uh, if you're in a smaller um, hospital that does not have a transplant program, even if your local surgeon says to you, I can take that out, your answer should be no, thank you, but it's good to know. Just that is a definite, don't do it. Um, refer to interventional radiology for biopsy. Many of you selected that, and in part, that's because you've all been trained over the years that if there's a funny lesion someplace, if you have, have something in a breast and a thyroid, you biopsy it. But that is not necessarily true in the liver. If this is a hepatocellular carcinoma, then, then there's a high risk that you could seed the tract and actually make a patient that is curable um, have metastatic disease. So we do not want to stick needles. It is, it is one of the most difficult decisions that I make as a clinician is when do you have a lesion that you stick a needle in, in the liver. Um, and it's usually when you actually, it's the opposite, when you're, you feel very strongly that it is not a liver cancer, but um, what you do next is going to depend on making the correct decision. And so you're really, really hoping it's not, but everything else you've done uh, non-invasively still leaves you with a little bit of uncertainty. So you should not do that. That's another important takeaway message. And again, there's a tendency to just send them. Your interventional radiologist will again, like the surgeon, go, sure, because they are taught to do that, and they don't necessarily know the literature related to the different lesions and how you manage it. Refer to a transplant center. Um, if you really don't have the expertise to get a good interpretation of additional imaging, that is not unreasonable. Um, start DAA for HCV, no, you're not ready to do that yet. Um, order biphasic CT. So this is the correct answer. The terminology in different centers is different. Uh, some places call a biphasic, they use biphasic and triphasic uh, as, as interchangeable terms. Some places call this a multiphasic CT. Um, but 
that's what you want. You do not want a contrast CT because a contrast CT is they put the patient into the scanner, they do a scan, they inject dye, and then they go and uh, talk about how their weekend was for 15 to 20 minutes, and then they come back and they do another round of imaging, and so you have non-con and contrast-enhanced imaging. But you actually, to see a liver cancer, which is what we're worried about, you have to have a dynamic arterial phase, which means you need extremely rapid phasic uh, scanning being done, and that requires a special protocol. So that's what you need to ask for. It is very, very easy to completely miss a liver cancer because you simply did a contrast CT. So you order the right kind of CT, biphasic, multiphasic, triphasic. Um, in some centers, you can do an MR. Um, it's kind of center-specific which way you go first on this. Uh, MR is better on some types of liver cancers for diagnosis and not quite as good uh, for very small lesions. So it becomes very center-specific, which one you do first. In general, almost all centers have availability of getting a biphasic CT, but don't necessarily have the protocols for, for good tumor liver imaging with MR. So that's why I suggest you start with your CT. Okay, so we do it. And now we see that it exhibits the characteristics of a hemangioma. There's enhancement in all phases which matches the blood pool, whereas hepatocellular carcinomas have a washout after the initial arterial fill. That's why, again, you have to have the multiphasic CT because you miss the arterial phase completely if you do a simple contrast CT. So this is reassuring. Lots of people have hemangiomas. They increase in middle age. Uh, they're very common. If they're not huge, they're of no clinical significance. When they get to be five centimeters or more, uh, there is some risk of rupture, and we do think about it. Some patients get pain associated with very large hemangiomas. Uh, but this one's a small one. This is a little over two centimeters, so not an issue. And we would reassure the patient and say, okay, it was, we were worried. We thought this could be a cancer. It's not a cancer. Let's move on. You calculate the non-invasive test, in this case, the FIB4, which is 3.28. What was the cutoff for advanced fibrosis cirrhosis? 3.25, so it's more than that. So the non-invasive test suggests that. You also get a transient elastography, and the results are 17.5 kPa, which would indicate what? cirrhosis, except this, the IQR over M, which is the internal measure of the quality of it, is in a range that suggests that it could be wrong. And so just because you got a test result doesn't mean it's always the right test result. Now, 
it would not be unreasonable because you have all by itself the low platelet count. The patient has HIV, so we know they have progressive disease that progresses more rapidly. The FIB4 is 3.28. There's the reversal of the AST with the ALT. Even though your transient elastography test is suboptimal, it would not be unreasonable to move forward with consideration of treatment of this patient. Um, and that's sort of the question. Let's do that just to see if you all agree with that. Mike, what's that song? Peter Gabriel, wow, okay. Um, so most of you would now treat the patient. Um, and again, I think that that is a reasonable approach based upon what we know. Um, it's not what I did. Because <laughs> I still said, I just am not sure. And asked him to undergo a liver biopsy, which he agreed to do. Um, and uh, this indeed does show cirrhosis, liver lobules surrounded by scar. And uh, so what are we going to do now? And your choices are obtain an EGD for variceal screening, start treatment for HCV. Come on, let's get on with it. <laughs> order EGD and start treatment for HCV, or refer to a hepatologist for treatment and evaluation. The who? Finally. <laughs> Okay, let's see. So most of you have been listening to particularly the last discussion. You would order the EGD and start treatment for HCV. That's, that's great, and uh, I agree with doing that. Um, we don't necessarily rush to get the EGD. Um, I, uh, I have some patients that it's just another opportunity if I'm doing the EGD to see that patient uh, during their treatment course and talk to them about how it's going. But uh, if you didn't do this for the next two or three months, you're fine. It's not an emergency. It's just something that should be done in the cirrhotic patients. Uh, Susanna mentioned the issue of do you, must you do it? Um, I think the answer is yes. Uh, there are those, particularly on the European side of the ledger, who argue that uh, it would be more cost-effective to, to look for evidence of more advanced disease. One of those things is a higher fiber scan, um, and, and 
there are some guidelines that say that you need over 19 or over 22 kPa to definitely go on to EGD because the yield of seeing significant varices is higher in those patients. Um, in this case, it wouldn't have mattered because I wasn't highly confident in my uh, in the result that I got on my fiber scan, so I would certainly have done it anyways. But uh, uh, I think that as we move forward, we're going to see some changes in deciding who that gets done on, uh, paradigms that may reduce healthcare costs as we identify more and more of these patients. Okay. Well, now you know everything about treatment. So which of the following would not be an acceptable regimen? Albosphere, grisoprevir times 12 weeks, Lidiposphere, soft times 12 weeks, soft val times 12 weeks, prod times 12 weeks. Wow, you are good. <laughs> <laughs> it froze. There we go. Okay. So, interesting. Susanna, commentary. So, this is, we saw the genotype one patient. Genotype one patient, and we could not get a subtype, and he is cirrhotic and, and co-infected. Yeah, and treatment naive. And treatment naive, correct. Um, so the regimen that clearly stands out here is the PROD regimen, um, because we know that in a patient who were, if the, if the patient's a 1 and you don't, can't subtype, you have to treat him as a 1A, and that would not be the standard treatment for a 1A cirrhotic with the PROD regimen, so that's a no-brainer. Um, I think the reason you also get a lot of responses for the e, the albuterol regimen is that in a 1A, the recommendation would be to do an NS5A test and check for resistance, and then potentially extend if there's a if there's a, a NS5A variant that um, confers high fold resistance. So there you go. That that is exactly right, and. Uh, I realize that this may be too small print to see, but the real emphasis here is that uh, you need to check the guidelines. The guidelines do get updated frequently. Um, I was struggling when I put this together, knowing that any day we were due to have the guidelines with the two new approved drugs, and I decided that that I would focus this mostly on the management of these patients because the treatment is going to vary and and on a regular basis you should be circling back to those guidelines to see what's new, what's changed, what applies now. All it takes is one more study in some area to say, oh, in those patients we should be doing resistance testing now. Oh, in those patients now we should be extending by another few weeks. Many of the approvals, many of the decisions are based on subsets of patients that are small as 14 patients in a group. And they are the best judgment at that moment, but that judgment changes. The whole concept of those guidelines 
was to have a living document that would change regularly as new information became available. Susanna wants to yeah, no, comment. So I would say, so given the discussions we've had earlier and the treatment-naive genotype 1 cirrhotic patient, do you foresee by the end of the week, potentially, hopefully, um, changes to this? What do you expect to be up in that green box? GP for how many weeks? 12 weeks. 12, yes. Do you expect to see soft Velvox in a treatment naive? No. So, so you already know what it looks like. Okay. Great. While you're waiting for insurance approval and the EGD, the patient calls to say his ankles are swollen and he has gained 15 pounds. You would now, A, start Lasix, 60 milligrams a day, repeat the ultrasound, tell him to raise his legs when sitting and wait for the approval of his HCV meds, call for help at the transplant center. I would have gotten that, but not with the first four notes. <laughs> okay. Interesting. Call for help. Okay. So um, I would argue that at this moment, we may be heading there, but that is not the right answer yet. Uh, I would not start 60 milligrams of Lasix a day, though I've seen people do that, and I urge you not to do that without more information. Um, telling him to raise his legs when sitting, uh, well, it may help the swelling in his legs, but that's not really the issue. The issue is, why did this happen? And so even though you just had an ultrasound, perhaps as short as four to six weeks ago, I would repeat the ultrasound. And we did that. And this is what we now see. So skin, subcutaneous fat, acidic fluid, and uh, so he now has ascites. This patient has an abdomen filled with fluid. What do we call that when a patient has, a cirrhotic patient has that happen? Decompensation. That is, so he has just, in these weeks, crossed over. And that's how quickly it happens. People are often surprised, like, wait, you just said that I was fine and that I could get the treatment, and now all of a sudden this happened. Why does that happen? Well, sometimes we can pick out a specific event, uh, and it could be something as simple as, as an automobile accident, a broken bone, a fall, a bad cold a few weeks before. Um, the liver is a homeostatic organ, and when it's at the edge of its uh, ability to maintain a homeostatic state, it, it looks like 
whatever happened, my liver failed, that it happened suddenly. But it's not really suddenly. That process had been happening for several years. But, but something tipped the patient over into this now decompensated state. The liver biopsy generally wouldn't do that unless you had a complication. Um, if he had developed a large hematoma, it is possible. I've, I've only seen that uh, twice in my career that the biopsy was the decompensating uh, source. Um, but, and again, we we have biopsied thousands and thousands of uh, cirrhotic patients. So it's not something that typically happens. It's not a reason not to do the biopsy. Now, you could not do a standard biopsy if you had a patient at this point. You cannot do uh, anything except a transjugular biopsy in a patient with ascites. But we already had our biopsy result. So now you have to decide what happens next. Your choices are you would start spironolactone, 50 milligrams, and furosemide, 20 milligrams. Do a diagnostic tap. Contact a transplant center, 1 and 2, 1, 2, and 3. Or call your interventional radiologist who wanted to stick a needle in this thing before and say, uh, can you do a TIPS for me? Go ahead and vote. Okay, let's see. So, nearly half of you, we're going to do one, two, and three. A few of you would send the patient for tips. But there's a pretty good spread of these. So let's talk through them. The, the starting dose for a patient with ascites, the starting management is to use a combination of aldactone or spironolactone at 50 milligrams with Lasix typically at 20 milligrams. The key agent in that regimen is the aldactone, not the Lasix. We are not treating congestive heart failure. The main purpose of the Lasix is to try and drive down the potassium uh, so that these patients don't become severely hyperkalemic. Uh, and the use of a loop diuretic at lower doses helps us. If you push the dose too high, you increase the risk of pushing this patient into hepatorenal syndrome. So people get impatient. This is the starting dosage. You generally should not change this in any way for at least two to three weeks before you decide if this is working or not working. Um, diagnostic tap. The first time you see a patient with ascites, and every time a patient has a change of status or gets admitted to the hospital for any reason, you should do a diagnostic tap. And that's because this patient could have SPP, and the first time you're looking, 
You want to make sure that there are no cells, that this patient doesn't have peritoneal carcinomatosis at this point, and also that uh, there's not something else going on. I, Not this patient, but I've had patients just like this, HIV, hep C, decompensated, uh, somewhat lower CD4s, and we found tuberculosis in their peritoneal fluid. So... Um, we always do a tap. So you need to get the tap and, and do diagnostics. We look at a SAG. We look at the, uh, the serum albumin to the acidic fluid albumin gradient. And different than Mike, but, uh, but probably named after him. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and we, we use that as a measure of, is this due to portal hypertension or another etiology? So those two things, definitely. Your patient has now decompensated. When I spoke to you this morning, I said, what are the reasons, when do you call a transplant center? And I, any sign of decompensation. So it's now time to make that call. So it is one, two, and three. TIPS is a treatment for patients with ascites, but only for refractory ascites. So large ascites that you either cannot treat at the maximum doses of, of uh, use of aldactone and Lasix, which are way higher than where we're starting at here, or that the patient has other things that complicate the use of appropriate doses, usually because they're having severe renal dysfunction. What regimen would you use for HCC screening in this patient? AFP every six months and ultrasound yearly. AFP every six months only. Ultrasound every six months. Ultrasound and AFP every six months. CT yearly or would not surveil for HCC because you already did one set of imaging. Now we're in the right era. <laughs> okay. Good. So that's what we talked about this morning. 75% ultrasound and AFP every six months. And uh, I think that that would be very reasonable. How would you stage the liver disease? Child's Pew score, MELD score, no need to stage. When he looks ill enough, we'll refer him to the transplant center. Okay, that messed up. Yeah, tried page up.
Did we lose that? Oh, there it is. Okay, so about 50-50. Um, so both of these are important. Uh, we're still facing this question about treatment. And so the choice of drugs is going to be perhaps tied to the child's pew stage. Uh, you know that this patient has decompensated. Uh, you're going to need to call the transplant center regardless in this patient. Um, and uh, whether or not his MELD is high. I mean, this patient could still have a MELD of 9, even though he has ascites, and by that criteria wouldn't have gone to the transplant center. Do you think liver transplantation is an option for your HIV-infected patients with liver disease? This is for you individually, not in general. What's the song first? Anyone? I know the song, but I... Yeah. Okay, so most of you are aware the transplant is an option. Is it an option here at, in Arkansas? Okay. For those that didn't hear, doing kidneys in HIV but not livers. Um, so there was a large study to look at this. It was the HIV solid organ transplant study. Um, and it did find that patient survival for those with HCV was significantly lower than those compared to a matched group that did not have HIV. That was not true in hepatitis B infected patients. And because of these data, uh, many centers that were doing transplants in HIV backed off because programs are evaluated by UNOS, the, the United Organ Sharing Network, on patient survival. And if you fall below a certain level of survival, regardless of the reason, you actually put your program on probation and could be shut down. So um, at, at the peak, when this study was in progress, about 40 centers in the U.S. were doing transplant. We think that that number is probably down in the 20s now. And uh, so you do need to find a center that that is doing this. Could they go to Duke, Susanna? Yes, our program will now transplant HIV into HPV patients. Okay. Um, for livers, although we haven't had one admitted yet. Okay. So our program also does this. We transplanted two last year, 2016. So, uh, and we have a couple at evaluation now. Yes, for one reason or oh, because they got better. Fantastic, that's great. 
And the other interesting thing about these patients is you think that they are immunosuppressed and, and therefore rejection wouldn't be a problem, but actually rejection was much higher than would be expected, which is probably related to a couple of things, fear of using appropriate rejection regimens during the study, but also that the dysregulation associated with HIV had some impact on rejection rates. Okay, so you've done all of the things we've talked about, and the patient has an appointment in transplant hepatology in eight weeks at a center that will see an HIV positive patient. So, we're back to the original question. You should treat HCV while waiting. You should not treat HCV without transplant center approval. song either. Okay, so split, about two-thirds, one-third. Um, so the correct answer here is you should not treat the HCV without transplant center approval doesn't mean you can't treat, it just means you shouldn't treat right now. So first, I, I'm not going to belabor the issues of uh, treating patients with decompensated disease. And again, the guidelines are changing. Uh, PROD is contraindicated in these patients. You've heard about the concerns related to the PI-containing regimens at length. Uh, can we treat these patients? Yeah, here's the SOLAR-1 trial, uh, decompensated patients, and uh, you could see the child's A decrement a little bit with B and a little more with C, but uh, overall the majority of patients do get cured. The issue, though, is the timing, and... Uh, and last year's AASLD, there was a paper by a guy named Chotwal, who uh, is up at Mass General, and uh, did a Markov simulation model looking at this, addressing the issue of before or after. Um, now, you might say, what's the difference? The difference is organ availability. So there are a certain number of HCV-positive organs that can be used in HCV-positive recipients. You also need to know that the country is divided into UNOS regions, and the time to get a cadaveric organ varies enormously across the regions, particularly with certain blood types. So... So a blood type O patient may have a waiting time of three to four years on the West Coast and New York and Boston. And 
may have a waiting time of 10 months in Cincinnati or Kentucky or, uh, or maybe in the Carolinas. So that makes an enormous difference in terms of when do you treat this patient. We know that we need to get the hep C cured, but if you take away a pool of organs that would only be used for a small number of people, then you're taking away the advantage that patient has by treating them if you treat them and cure them before the transplantation. And in this analysis, the optimal MELD threshold was 22 to 26, depending on the UNOS region, that MELDs below the threshold favor HCV treatment before transplant and that's why you need to know where you're at, what center you're listing at, what's the meld of your patient, what's, what is the availability of HCV-positive organs both within that region, because you get first choice before you have to ship them out and offer them nationally. So where I live now, because we are almost the epicenter of the, of the heroin uh, outbreak, and many, many, many of those patients have hep C, and we're seeing young people dying, dropping dead on the streets after they get a dose of carfentanil, but their livers are good. And if they're listed as donors, we're getting healthy young livers with hep C in them at an incredible rate. But we can't yet transplant them, although we're talking about it soon, into an HCV-negative person. So therefore, we don't want to hurt the chances of others, and we would not treat most patients now before. We would wait until afterwards, and this is a treatment-naive patient. They will be relatively easy to cure post-transplant. So that's what we're going to wait for in these patients. If you're in California, you're probably going to play the the treat now, and uh, some of those patients, as you heard Dr. Nagy say, will actually improve and may even come off the transplant list. Unfortunately, another group of them will enter meld purgatory, the space in between uh, where you have bad decompensated disease, you don't have a high enough meld because meld is used to determine organ uh, availability and, and priority, and not enough, low enough to come off the list. You're not well, but you're not going to get a liver, and that's really bad, and that's, that becomes a big focus of the discussions in, in what you do, how you do it. And that's why, even though you can treat these patients, you shouldn't treat those patients without really consulting the center. If we were talking to you at a distance, we probably, in my center, we would probably say don't treat, but in another center, they may tell you, go ahead, treat, let's talk about what you're going to use, and uh, let me know how that works out so the patient doesn't have to travel to the transplant center for that care. Questions? Because I think that's, oh, I'll finish up. Remember that staging helps uh, determine not only viral disease management, but liver disease management. Compensated cirrhotics can and should be treated, but remember issues of surveillance. 
and be constantly aware of the risk of decompensation. The cirrhotic that was fine last week may not be fine next week. And remember that liver transplant is a viable option for those with decompensated disease and with liver cancer. Um, I realize that I did not talk about what are those guidelines. Basically, we use the Milan criteria, which say that, that one lesion in the liver less than five centimeters or three with a cumulative diameter of less than nine centimeters is transplantable. And anything more than that is not. So it's very important. That's part of why it's so important to find these patients early. Not call the transplant center because we just found a nine centimeter single lesion because that patient essentially will be dead in two years. So five centimeter single lesion or smaller or no more than three lesions with a total diameter of nine centimeters. Okay? Thank you. Great. We have 11 minutes left, actually more like nine minutes left because we've got two minutes worth of wrap-up slides. So now's the time to ask any kind of, we should try to make them quick questions to things that we didn't cover. Um, or you want to expand on a little bit more in the back, back there? You should grab them. I have a, kind of a quick question related to the treatments that are going on, and, and obviously these individuals are pretty sick. Is there a go-to antibiotic in an outpatient setting that is preferred um, when someone's that sick or um, showing decline like that uh, that's not maybe necessarily bad enough to be in the hospital right away or just a suggestion or... An antibiotic for treating what? Well, for SBP or well, just just for the for the patient you just had up there, was that a real case? Yes. Um, at one time, I mean, did you think about well, should I put him on something just in case something happens, given his HIV and hepatitis? Is there uh, prophylaxis of some sort? So once a patient has SBP, we do put them on prophylaxis, uh, uh, typically Cipro. Uh, some people use Bactrim. We we tend to use Cipro, um, but uh, other than that, no. Although these patients, sepsis is one of the leading causes of disease, and and you do need to be incredibly aware. And these patients, we put in the hospital much more aggressively than other patients that we say, oh yeah, you know, take your temp, give me a call, and these we just pop into the hospital and, uh, and culture them up, keep an eye on them. Yes, Joe. Healthcare worker needle stick. Yeah, so, so needle stick for hep C, there is no prophylaxis. The risk of a hollow bore needle, needle stick is uh, 4% or so, maybe lower. It depends what literature. Susanna likes the lower, but uh, but the bottom line is, with the cost of the drugs, you would have to treat someplace between 96 and 99 patients to prevent one case, and it's so curable once they actually get it that uh, it's worth waiting.
but I, I see your point. Like the initial thing with HIV, where they were going to randomize to AZT or not. not too many. And I think, as Ken said, that the sort of conversion risk is quite low. Um, and there is a paper that was published uh, earlier this year, maybe 2016, in CID, um, where this was addressed um, uh, as best as possible because of the lack of data. How would you know? How many people would you need to actually do this in a randomized control trial to prove it? But also modeling study. Um, it was a very short, quick, and dirty modeling study. It didn't take much to show that there's there's just no financial. Uh, uh, there's no way financially it makes sense. I think the other issue is we have no idea what that prophylaxis would be, right? So at least in HIV, we have some guidance in animal models. In HCV, we really don't understand that. So I think for that reason, the guidelines do not recommend post-exposure uh, prophylaxis in HCV. Um, and my guess is we're never going to see a study. There have been some that have come up on CLIN trials and then not been done. And I know there's one that was supposed to be enrolling, but um, they, they keep kind of dying on the vine because... It's, it would be very hard to show um, in terms if you look at the rates, but uh, that was published in CID. Um, Dave Thomas is the senior author. Other questions? Yeah. Yeah. The question was non selective beta blockers. Right. Suppose the selective beta blockers. Right. So, so first, the, the first line of therapy for management of varices is the use of non-selective beta blockers, um, of which there's only two real non-selectives licensed in the United States, Indorol and Natalol. Um, and then there is a, what's called a mixed one, Carvedilol. Um, they reduce the risk of variceal bleeding, uh, first bleed, and they reduce as secondary prophylaxis after the first bleed, the risk of bleeding. Not completely, about between 25 and 40 percent or so. Uh, selective beta blockers, all the others that you tend to use for like hypertension and cardiovascular disease management, um, are selective for the heart, and they don't affect the splanchnic circulation, so you can't use those. Um, so that's sort of the basic story, and we would recommend that in most patients. Uh, I wasn't sure if your question is goes beyond that. There is a controversy about when a patient has ascites, whether you should use those, and it's sort of tearing the hepatology community apart and uh, in terms of people fighting with each other, but uh, uh, I fall on the side of we continue to use it and don't think that it increases the risk of, uh, of developing hepatorenal syndrome, which is what has been part of the discussion. You, uh, we start at natalol at 20 milligrams and then titrate it up to... Uh, um, usually tolerability. Um, there are some criteria regarding overall blood pressure, uh, but we try to get people's heart rates in blocked, so 50s to 60s. 
this is a case where you'd be working with the hepatologist, so I don't think we'd be called on to <laughs> make the nuanced calls. I have one last question, then we're going to be out of time, please. I want to thank you guys for coming, and I want to know if you're aware of any cost analysis studies. Uh, you know, Arkansas is an impoverished state, and many of the things we've been talking about today are out of our reach with Medicaid patients. We have $500 a year that we can spend on lab work. Um, in terms of health policy, do you know, is it still too soon to show the benefits with the new drugs for hep C? I can remember when HIV came around, we were able to get a lot of leverage by showing the cost savings in terms of hospitalizations, um, outcomes. Are there any outcome studies yeah, or any there are. cost analysis yeah, studies? Yeah, it's a great question. And almost every study, when you look at it, uh, it, the nuances matter, but it is, quote, cost-effective in terms of quality-adjusted life years, especially for people with advanced disease, especially for people who are co-infected, et cetera. Um, but all of it depends on what the cost is, right? So the less, ex less money you're putting into the medicine, the more cost-effective it becomes. So back in the early days when the drugs first were approved and they were in the you know, $70,000, $80,000 range, for certain populations, it was not adding up too well. But now, with the cost coming down, it, it really is fairly cost-effective by almost all criteria. I mean, it's, the data are there. It's a question then becomes, is it, can we afford it? That's another question, which a lot of Medicaid systems can't. And I would just add, I certainly, I think it's really important to think about the fact that when we talk here, we try to talk, cover, check every box of everything that would be recommended as part of standard of care. Um, but I do think that there are ways that you can develop clinical protocols that do kind of required testing and nothing above and beyond that. And I actually think um, there, as GP comes out, where there's an option for treatment-naive patients of not genotyping, um, there be, where, which still the majority of our patients are treatment-naive that we're finding, right? There are ways that you can significantly decrease costs. And we've worked with our health department in Durham to... Um, and actually with groups who are rolling this out in other countries to develop very resource-limited um, uh, clinical protocols. And I think, I mean, you know, those are ones that, 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 I, that we would be certainly willing to share. Um, so, I mean, I, I echo what Mike said. Almost every study that's been done, going back even to the, the SimSoft era where it was actually much more expensive, um, um, cost-effectiveness was not an issue. Cost savings, I think, is coming. Um, I think with this new round and increased market competition, the potential for true cost savings is probably very, very real. Um, I would also just say that, you know, clinical um, testing, we probably over-test people right now. You, you know, heard for SBR and everything else. But if you really developed a model um, of, of what do you have to do to ensure safety um, and nothing more than that, there are ways to significantly cut costs around testing in particular, like $500 for testing. I'd say you don't need... You know, you don't need quantitative HCBRNAs. You just need qualitative HCBRNAs. There's all kinds of things that you could do to cut costs. Remember that one patient that goes to transplant costs nearly a million dollars in the first year. Right. So, so, so we're, we're right at the top of the hour, but there are some very important things for um, just housekeeping. Um, first off, you'll be sent an evaluation form by your email address. This is very important. This will help you get the CME certificates of participation, 
and the uh, nursing credits and pharmacy credits. Um, then you'll be sent to a post-activity assessment. This is very important to us for knowing how to manage these things, get them better. Um, and uh, also it's required for your credits. Uh, the case presentations will be available on the website. Uh, it, you should have an account now, and if you don't, I'll talk about that in a second. You need to establish an account with IESUSA on their website. Um, and again, the links will be with to you in the emails for follow-up, but this is where you can get the information. Um, the bottom line is in the yellow here. Um, once you log in, you request your certificate, enter the total hours, and then hit submit, uh, and the claim will be no more than 30 days after the date of the activity. Um, once you do that, you can just print it. So it's, it's right there. You don't have to wait for it to be mailed to you. Um, for MOC, uh, for ABIM stuff, um, you get to the end of the evaluation. On the thank you page, you click the blue hyperlink for ABIM post-test. Please take that. Uh, it helps us demonstrate effectiveness of the, uh, we've kind of given you the answers, I think, at this point. So it would be really good to do that. Um, it would be helpful to us for your, um, and you do this for your CME credits. Uh, for pharmacy credits, um, same, same thing. Um, and the certificate's also available for you. It'll be in that 0.45 as opposed to the 4.5. Nursing credits, same kind of deal. So just follow the instructions on the website. I think it's pretty clear. Um, the final step is once you are logged in, you get your certificate, enter the total, and then hit Submit. And then as long as you do it within between now and 30 days, you'll get your certificate right there. You just print it out. Um, if you don't have the account, you go to www.isusa.org, create the new account, et cetera. If you forgot your password, it's the usual like every website. They'll send it to your email address. Um, you can subscribe if you'd like for emails. This includes stuff for hepatitis C, but also HIV. They're generally pretty good. Um, and there are all other kinds of materials you can explore on the website. Just a couple of other things that are coming up. There's a series of webinars. Um, the next one is Mike Charlton, who's going to talk about uh, treating HCV with decompensated cirrhosis, sort of continuing on where we left off today. Um, again, you can see all this listed, a uh, number of things beyond hep C, including STI treatments. Um, for those of you who do HIV, and we have a series every year that probably the between here, the one in Atlanta is a great one to attend. It's going to be Friday, March 16th. You're also probably close enough to Chicago where that might be an option, or Washington, D.C. And all of these courses are listed, <clears throat> and you can see the dates here. They're also listed on the, web, on the website. There will be other repeats of this event um, nearby to you, but I suspect it will be a repeat, so you probably don't want to tr travel to Nashville or Louisville. But the bottom line is um, the same kind of deal. But the HIV spring courses are listed there as well. And then you have the access to uh, uh, this new uh, topics in HIV for resistance mutation. I believe that was done by David Wiles. And it's quite comprehensive and pretty informative. I think that is it besides thanking you all for being here and hanging in there with us. Um, the evaluations, I'll say it for the third time, is really, really important. So please fill those out. Answer the ABIMMOC questions because that will tell us how we did. And thanks to ISUSA and to the faculty. And we'll call it, and the, and the public health department here in Arkansas, and Dr. Patel for being such a great host. Thank you very much.